And so even tonight, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Christ. So we're going to start with the application first and try to get you guys rolling and thinking and, and considering. So when you think of the resurrection, what is the practical significance for your life every day? <laughs> we can pray to him because he's, he's actually alive. All right? When you think of the resurrection, how does it change your everyday existence? Liz? There's no fear of death. Andy? Yeah. Yeah, and the apostle makes that clear multiple times for the power that raised him from the dead is the same power at work in us. And it's like there, there is no greater um, exposition of the power of God than the resurrection. I mean... He is, he is more powerful. I, I do not think the resurrection taxed him. But we have never seen a greater display of his power than the resurrection. And it's not when the resurrection was done. He's like, whew, barely got that one through. You know, it, didn't, it did not exhaust him a bit. He's infinite in power. But for us to capture his power, that's the best way for us to see it. I think, Kristen? There's a sense in which we live in bodies that are corruptible and perishable, and we live in a world that is likewise perishing and corrupted. And the answer to both is a renewed work of God, a making new of what is old and corrupted by sin. Uh, redemption, maybe we could say. All right, a couple more. Peter? Yeah. The purchase price of every mercy has been secured, and the resurrection affirms it to be true. Travis? Yeah. Proof of payment made in full in the resurrection gives us the confidence that God is satisfied. Ed? Debt is paid, sins are fully forgiven. And so we go to him on the basis of a restoration of fellowship, not on the basis of uh, some unforgiven sin. All right? What? We have hope? If I, if I could add it, because I think hope is fantastic, we have a hope that will not disappoint. And I think that's part of the point of 1 Corinthians 15. There is a hope, right? Like if, if we hope in vain, where do all people be most pitied? Um, all right. Yeah, it's, it's not merely just a position like we're now, you know, citizenship is in heaven. It's actually a real experience of the believer that we are empowered to defeat sin and to battle against it with all the power of the spirit of the living Christ. Okay, one more. That's good. No, oh, we hit the end. We just exhausted it. Kristen? Yeah, I would actually just add to that. He's worthy to praise because he has actually already defeated death. 
right? So when we speak to the gospel and we tell others about the gospel of Christ, it's not as though we hope he can pull this out in the fourth quarter and we're waiting for the victory to happen. He has already achieved victory. And so we speak a gospel already secured. And so it should give us boldness even in evangelization of others that, that this is a message we declare. It is not a message that has yet to be secured. It already has been. All right, so we're going to go look at Ephesians, whew, 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm just going to walk through the last part of the chapter. We've, we've, we're jumping in after weeks of kind of a break, and now next week we have Sunday evening where we're, we're taking a Sunday night off, um, and then we meet again next, uh, the following Sunday. So we're going to kind of skip through the end part of uh, 1 Corinthians here, but we're going to look in, at the end of chapter 15 today, verses 50 through 58, and kind of wrap up this section on the resurrection. Remember... And in the first few verses, he said, I delivered to you of what was of first importance. And he gives the gospel. Jesus Christ has died for his sins. He's, he's been raised again according to the scriptures. He's been seen by many. And then he walks through the importance of the resurrection and proves it on several different levels. And now as we get to the end, the concluding remarks, I'm going to suggest to you that he's going to tell us the resurrection is necessary in order for us to see heaven. In other words, no one truly gets heaven without being a citizen fit for heaven. And, and so he suggests that in verses 50 through uh, 53. And then in 54, he's going to move and transition to speaking of uh, the victory of Christ. But let me look at verse 50 through 53 with you all. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now we just stop there before going to the rest of the text. He argues that the resurrection, and maybe I could say the resurrection to glorified condition, is necessary for us to be suitable for heaven's glories. Look at the way he says it. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. And if you recall back at the beginning of the chapter, somewhere around verse 23, he says that Jesus Christ is going to um, deliver his kingdom to the Father. And he has kingdom language at the beginning. The last enemy to be defeated is, is death. So he already has kingdom theology as part of the resurrection. That is, there's ultimately a realm over which there will be a king named Jesus, and he will rule over it, and it's a realm in which death will be destroyed, and it will be done to the glory of the Father. So now he comes in verse 50 and says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. And then look at verse 53. The perishable perishable body must do what? Must put on imperishable. And the mortal body must put on immortality. You and I are unsuitable for heaven because our, our flesh and blood, our mortal bodies, our bodies that have been stained by sin are incompatible. They do not work in heaven. So it is a required necessity that you go through glorification. Now, I said resurrection, I probably overspoke. Because Paul makes clear here that there's a category that doesn't get raised from the dead, right? Look, look in this verse here. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. 
Now, you New Testament scholars know mystery means something previously unrevealed, now disclosed in, in and through the New Testament documents. So Old Testament saints did not have this piece of, of data. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, okay? It's necessary for us to have an per- imperishable body, an immortal body. And so he says, all of us have to go through this transition, but not all of us go through it the pathway of being buried and then raised in resurrection. Some of us avoid death, and he seems to think of himself as not necessarily dying, right? We shall not all sleep. He's including himself in the living Corinthians. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So how long will this change take to happen? Right? In a moment. In the blink of an eye. You know, so, so it will not be a long process. So sanctification, for some of us, is decades. And then in a moment, we put on immortality and glory. And we meet the Lord. And if you want just a cross-reference here, I think 1 Thessalonians 4, where you have, um, is it verse 16, when the dead are raised in Christ and the trumpet sounds. Um, this is a consistent theme that Jesus Christ receives his own with a blast of the trumpet announcing his um, reception of his own. We are changed. The dead are raised at the same time. Now, he's answering part of the Corinthian problem. If they're dead, have they missed out? And his answer is, no. It's not only we who which are alive, which will we'll see glory, but those who are dead, who have fallen asleep, will also be raised. We will meet the Lord in the air. We will be all changed. We will all put on imperishable. And then the, the necessary change will have happened. Verse 54, when perishable puts on imperishable and mortal puts on immortality, then will come to pass this saying. And he quotes both Hosea and Isaiah as he quotes us. Okay, so resurrection is necessary. And maybe I could just maybe say glorification is necessary. But he's speaking to the resurrection being necessary for those who have fallen asleep, that they would be equipped for heaven's glories. Now, I don't know about any of you, but when I meditate on being unkillable in heaven, I wonder things like, could I jump off a cliff? And what happens? I don't know. You guys all shake your head like I'm the crazy guy in the room. No one's wondered that. Like, I just, I just, like, when you start thinking about what is heaven like and what will my existence be like, and I realize that there is a renewed society that's sinless and perfect, but it's going to be forever society, right? It will never end. No one will ever grow old. You'll never be fatigued because of uh, the years have passed by and, and your bones creak when you walk. You'll never be in a state in which um, your, your physical infirmities lead you to death. What do you think you're doing on year one billion? You know, at, at what point does your, like, you know what, I'm done farming. I want to go, like, explore the oceans. Like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we are looking at God's world, and we're leveraging it for his glory, and you can't die. You're imperishable. And you get to glorify him forever by navigating his world and understanding the mysteries of the omniscient creator who made and manufactured this world with wisdom and glory for your joy in his wisdom, in his majesty. Um, Just in the introduction of Piper's book on providence, he said something that just like, it gets your mind spinning. 
But he's talking about how God paints every sunset. I mean, he said sunrise. It was sunrise. And he talks about just the beauty of God's majesty at doing this. You know, like every sunrise greets us, and it's like just glorious. He goes, but then I realize the sun never stops rising. It's always rising somewhere. Like this is a moving picture that has never stopped since God made the sun. That every day, every moment of every day, he's constantly painting the most beautiful, glorious sunsets. Always. And eternity is like that. It is day after day of just taking his creation, taking his people, the redeemed, and living within a creation in which every mote of dust declares God is glorious. And we get to investigate it forever. And we get to sing his praises. And we get to leverage it for his pleasure. And we get to do that in the context of people who never sin, nor do we ever sin against them. That's the glories of heaven. And, and uh, words just could never do justice. I mean, sometimes we even read scripture and just find ourselves um, wanting more than it says. And so maybe you will take some time and consider the fact that if you're immortal, incorruptible, and imperishable, what your existence would find joy doing forever. And then maybe not the same thing forever, right? Like maybe after like 10,000 years, you like change your vocation. <laughs> like go back to school, figure it out again in a different way. <laughs> I mean, you just have so many years to live. All right. There's not only the necessity of glorification or the resurrection that I said before, but there's a necessary victory for Christ. Okay, the resurrection is not our victory. It's Christ's victory for us. And I think that's really clear in this text. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? These are quotes from the Old Testament, and they're coming true in the messianic work and victory of Christ. Look in verse um, 54. When perishable puts on imperishable, and mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass. Okay, so when we're at a Christian funeral, let's, not be, let's be a little more cautious. Should we be sad at funerals? Yes. Like, the sting of death still bites, right? It still, it still has teeth. It still hurts. But there is a day coming when death is swallowed up in victory because the resurrection and glorification have happened. And in that moment, the sorrows of death are gone. So, so when we talk about living for Christ, it could be that like the Apostle Paul where he says like, he was daily in jeopardy of dying. That if he were to die, these churches would be mourning as the, as the bright light of his apostolic ministry is, is snuffed out early. Like that would have been tragic for the early church. But in the resurrection, it would be proof that he had risked nothing. Right, like, like, living for God is no risk. The biggest, most foolish risk you could ever take is living for yourself. And if you are to die at the hands of some tragedy while serving God with your whole heart, you have lost nothing. But you won't know that, and we won't feel that until the resurrection. Then what is said about death's victory and death's sting will be reversed, and there will be no sting. There will be no uh, victory of death over God's people. God's people will, in fact, be victorious over it. 
And verse 56 explains why this is the case. The sting of death is sin. Why does death happen? Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. Okay, so thank you, Adam and Eve. Right? Like, we are, we are doomed to die because of Adam and Eve's sin. Uh, really, Adam's sin. Now, let's not, let's not fool ourselves. None of you would have done any better. You know, like, we would like to think we would. We're a little bit like Israel. They probably looked back on Adam and thought he was dumb for choosing sin. And then you read Israel's story, and they constantly chose sin. And then you're like, man, I would do better. And then you read the apostles, and you think they would do better. And you would be just like Peter. You'd just like Israel. You'd be just like Adam. I think that's what Scripture clearly does to humble us. And if we don't see it, our desperate need of walking in the mercy and the grace of God, we are doomed to fall like them. So then we come to a text like this, and the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So I, I think at least in two ways the New Testament seems to speak to this. Caleb mentioned it um, last week and the week before as he's working through Romans 6. But the law does a few things for us. Um, if there are no lines, then we're not crossing any lines. There's no trespassing if there's no property lines. We can just wander wherever we want. And when God starts drawing lines, it, it does a few things to us. Our sin nature responds. When you, see, when you see a wet paint sign, what does your finger want to do? Can I just, like, confession moment? Has anyone ever touched a sign, like wet paint? Like, you see wet paint, like on a door. Has any confession, seriously now, has anyone ever touched it? There's only like eight of us. I'm surprised it's only so few of us. But it's like, you see, don't touch wet paint. Don't all of you think, is it really wet? And it's amazing how the law, you know, like, my mom can say all day, hey, or, or she, she can make cookies, and I won't eat them all day, but when she says, hey, don't eat these, these are for the neighbors, that's when I really want one. That's the power of the law. Right, the law, when it draws the line, our nature responds to it. And it kind of, oh yeah? Hmm. Really? And we begin to overstep it. I think it's more than that, though. And sometimes we're just eating cookies all the time. And, and we're lawbreakers because we shouldn't eat the cookies. We just don't have mom's command saying, don't eat the cookies. And it's not as though when she says, don't eat the cookies, we're like, oh, now I'll stop. We keep eating them. But now we know we're doing wrong. And now the law has revealed that we have been doing wrong and we don't stop. So I, I think there's a sense in which the law exposes us. Um, Fee points out in his commentary a, another element, and that is that there's also a backside to the law, and that is when I haven't eaten any cookies, and my brothers have, and mom says, don't eat any cookies for the neighbors, I have a moment of pure, righteous pride. I mean, unrighteous pride. You know, like, like that sense of, I'm right. I'm righteous. And that self-exalting arrogance is also sin. And the law provokes in us. And I would also add then, exposes our need for grace and mercy. Like there's a good side to the law, but the law then, because it's a law, not only gives parameters for obedience, but consequences for disobedience. So when you read that, the sting of death is sin. 
okay, if my, in my metaphor, have I eaten any cookies? And if I have, there's consequences. And working backwards then, the consequences I deserve because I've eaten cookies and mom telling me no cookies was violated all the time. Okay, the answer, but thanks be to God who gives victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a humbling verse, isn't it? Victory did not come through you. It was one for you. You are not the victor. Jesus is. You are not the hero of your story. You are, in fact, the villain most of the way through until the Lord Jesus conquered your soul and saved you from sin. That's humbling. Like, not only could you not save yourself, you were dead set on fighting against God until he won you. And he did. And he successfully brought us to the Savior. He has won the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, I think putting that together then, there's a necessary glorification and there's a necessary victory. When God permitted sin, he didn't do so with no understanding of the ends. He planned the ends before sin ever happened in the garden. That is, through Jesus Christ, the victory over sin and death would be accomplished. So that in the garden, in Genesis 3, when he says that the son of evil crushed the head of the serpent, God was not quickly assembling plan B. This was always God's design. And even in the garden, you see hints of the substitutionary atonement when those skins are put on Adam and Eve. Those skins required an animal to die. Fig leaves would not do. The death of an innocent animal that had never done wrong, and because especially at that point in creation, it was certainly not lame or infirm, was required. So a blameless, perfect animal died for Adam and Eve's sins. And here we see the death of Christ necessary, the resurrection of Christ necessary for our glorification. Finally, then the application, the necessary, I would say, application of this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be what? Steadfast. That really rings true with Philippians, doesn't it? To stand firm in the Lord. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So in all the applications tonight, this is Paul's. Do what in light of the resurrection? My brothers, be steadfast, unshaken, always overflowing with labor for the Lord. Because your labor is not in vain. Go back to the very beginning of the passage. I think sometimes in our modern era we miss how, especially the Apostle Paul constructs, I use the phrase argument, and I realize for some of you that's kind of lost, but I'm thinking like a lawyer's argumentation, when I say argument, where he's laying out reasons or, or he's laying out a sequential series of logic that will lead you to a conclusion. Look where he starts in verse um, 2. Let me just go back to verse 1 so you have running context here. Brothers, here's the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast. At the end he says, do what? Be steadfast. Here he says, hold fast. I mean, he's come full circle now, hasn't he? He starts with, you are being saved, stand firmly in this gospel. And he's going to explain what it is. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ who died and was raised. It's like, don't leave it. 
This is the gospel that saves you. It's a gospel that raises you from the dead. Because your brothers and sisters in Christ have died does not mean we've lost hope. We aren't promised that we won't die. We are promised to be raised to glory. So be steadfast unless you believed in in what? You see how he comes at the end and he says, our labor is not in vain because we have not believed in vain. Or go back down to verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. And then again in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. And as he concludes, he wraps up and says, our faith should generate a passion and a diligence and a pursuit of Christ and heavenly things because it is not in vain. We have not tied our hopes to a a ship that sinks, but to a Savior who's raised and lives forever. Our hope is not something that has been placed in a false Savior, but a Savior who is alive in power and whose victory has already been accomplished in the cross and is going to be secured in glory when he comes. So be steadfast, unshaken. So can I just encourage you that generally speaking, as a pastor, and I I still consider myself young, at some point I'll probably still consider myself young, and when I say that you all laugh at me, but, but for now I can kind of pull it off. I realize that very few people know that they're losing hold of Christ when they're losing hold of Christ. And that usually it's a subtlety of sin. It's a life in which there are sorrows upon sorrows upon sorrows. Or affliction and hurt and injury after affliction, hurt and injury. Or maybe moral failure after moral failure. And so they begin to lose hold of a commitment to do right, to stay right, to resist sin. Rarely do I see people just go toward doctrinal defection without moral corruption. So like when I I see the marriages that have fallen apart in our, our ministry history, or when you look back over our church and you've seen people drift away, rarely does it begin with, No, I'm not sure I believe that Jesus is God. It usually begins with a neglect of some of the disciplines of grace, a neglect of the people of God, a neglect of their marriage, a neglect of moral purity and the things they watch and their entertainment and how they spend their time. And isn't that exactly what the apostle warns, that evil companions corrupt good manners, good behavior here in this text? the theological passage about the resurrection. And so I think if we truly believe in the resurrection, we should be vigilant at the doors to our personal life. Because my guess is most of you are so clear-minded about the doctrine of the resurrection that your, your conviction about it will be held in intellectual commitment but your will and your commitment to live for the resurrection will be eroded by sin. Does that make sense? Like, I'm not, I'm not worried that next week Ed comes and goes, you know, I don't believe in the resurrection. What would worry me is that Ed believes that sin is a viable choice because he loses hope and loses the treasure 
of the state of glory that's coming for those who are raised from the dead. And so he begins to not live for heaven. He begins to live for now. And then it's a very practical rejection of the resurrection. Does that make sense? That's, that's been it's somewhat anecdotal, right? Like, like I, I rarely see someone go, oh, I don't believe in the resurrection. But it's as though, like, well, God wants me happy and my marriage is so miserable, I'm out. And they, they trade heaven's joys for peace because they're in an embattled home. And that, that's where I really see some, like the, the challenge to be steadfast. Just don't let Satan find those little cracks in your spiritual armor to get at your heart and tempt you. Kristen? So this, among other passages in Scripture, is one of those ones that I think leaves us with a little bit of tension. Um, like, so we would believe in a doctrine of perseverance, that is, all God's people truly persevere to the end. And I think warnings like that um, caution us so that we don't become careless and neglectful. Like, if, if salvation were like this, if it's like, repeat after me these words and you will never lose your hope of eternal life which is how almost some people believe, right? Practically, at least. What happens to that person after they say those magic words? They begin to be very careless about sin, right? And, and, and entangle themselves with all sorts of garbage because they think they cannot possibly lose their salvation. I'm not suggesting to you the Bible's teaching us that we, if we sin, we lose our salvation, but I think it's cautioning us that that type of recklessness is actually a sign of faithlessness, Instead, I think this passage stirs us up to be very, and, and just like I said, like be diligent lest cracks in our spiritual armor let Satan have access to our souls to tempt us to turn away and deny our Savior like Peter. You know, like, I mean, I just think we need to be very diligent to build our spiritual immune system and cultivate our, our diligence to be under the preaching of the word, to be personally reading the scriptures, to be communing with the Lord in prayer. Like these, these disciplines of pursuing grace are the means by which you are being saved. And, and neglect of them is a sign that maybe we aren't saved. And so to me, there's a little bit of tension when I come to those if passages, right? Like, you are saved if you do this. And it's like, so are we saved by doing that? I don't think that's the point. And I shared this a couple weeks ago. When I see these warning passages, I usually look at them as this. It's like a caution sign on a slippery, crazy, cliffy road. Right? So you're driving a sports car. You see that caution sign. What does a good, wise driver do? Slows down. He handles it well. He sees the caution sign and is warned. And he is safely, securely delivered to his destination. And some might say, well, he was a good driver. Well, in fact, that caution sign and his good driving were both components in him safely getting to his destination. Whereas the reckless, overconfident driver sees the sign and says, I don't need any warnings, and falls to his doom. And, and that warning doesn't land. It slips off his arrogant and unsympathetic heart to the warnings of Scripture. And it proves his faithlessness. So that's, that's generally how I've, I've 
felt those warning passages are intended to land, that they end up being a proving ground for those who respond with faith to those scriptures versus those who are arrogant and faithless to those scriptures. Does that help? Trying to, trying to think through those warning passages well, because it's not saying you had it and lost it. I think those warning passages are taken soberly by the believer and ignored by the, um, I, I don't mean this unkindly, but the pretender, and sometimes their, their pretense even fools themselves. You know, that they, they truly are sincere in their pretense. They think they're believers, but they're not actually fully committed to Christ. They're committed to Christianity as long as it serves them. And these warning passages are like water off a duck's back. They roll off and don't penetrate. All right, any other questions? It's a really good text. If this passage isn't memorized or at least kind of like forming your thoughts, and just think about the counsel here. As someone's struggling with sin, brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Are you tired? Are you worn and weary? Are you exhausted of parenting all your little rugrats? Are your teenagers beating you down and beating you into submission rather than you getting them to follow the Lord? Are the years of retirement and the tiredness of your body leading you to tiredness of the soul? Be steadfast. Don't be moved away from the Lord. Your labor is not in vain when it's done in him and for him. Glory is coming, and your rest will be there. Don't quit. Don't be shaken. He is worthy.